Hi everyone, Wes here. Uh, just before we get started with this week's episode of Pop Culture Boner, just dropping in for a quick content warning. At around 17 minutes 45, Alex briefly discusses suicide. Uh, if you'd like to skip that section, you can jump forward around 40 seconds and drop back in. So that's at about 17.45 and dropping back in at around 18.25. We've also included some links to support services in the episode description on your podcast feed if you do need them. Apart from that, we hope you enjoy this week's episode. So we've hit another milestone. I've made 20 episodes of this podcast, which is frankly very silly. Uh, and I was trying to think about what I could write about that would reflect such a momentous occasion. So I was trying to think of something that was released in the year 2000 and was as such uh, experiencing a similarly momentous 20th anniversary. The answer, perhaps unsurprisingly, is that lots of things were released in the year 2000. Gladiator, Bring It On, and American Psycho, they all came out that year. But I wasn't actually allowed to watch any of those things until I was in high school, and they didn't really spur me into action. Uh, so then I sent this rambling voice memo to Wes, who you may remember from such hits as Making This Podcast Sound Any Good and uh, writing the theme tune to this podcast. And I was explaining the idea of like maybe doing a 20th anniversary thing or something, and they sent me back a text message that just said, Linkin Park, hybrid theory. <laughs> Now, because I struggle, probably like many of you, with time as a concept, I immediately had to double-check that Linkin Park's seminal album was, in fact, 20 years old. Uh, it is. <laughs> My second thought was, I don't know if I actually know that many Linkin Park songs. Uh, it turns out I was incorrect. <laughs> one thing I was allowed to do, or, like, not necessarily allowed to do, but one thing I did in my youth, for some reason was wake up at 3am and watch Rage for hours at a time. For the very tiny percentage of non-Australian listeners, uh, Rage is an all-night music video show that airs on the public broadcaster that's rated for 15 plus before 6am, and then after 6am it becomes like a top 50, top 100 countdown. When I was younger, it was the quickest way to find new music and potentially accidentally see something that could really scar you music video-wise. Uh, like that time that I accidentally saw Aphex Twins come to Daddy music video, which you should look up if you have not seen it. But because I was tiny and my brain was a sponge, it turns out a lot of what I consumed has actually just oozed into every recess of my being to the point where One Step Closer came on while I was re-listening to Hybrid Theory and I immediately sang all of the words like I was in some sort of trance. And I haven't done a musical episode for a while, so today we're talking new metal, baby. Hell yeah. I'm Alex. This is Pop Culture Boner, the podcast edition. And today I'm thinking about Linkin Park's hybrid theory. So the intro to this is a little bit misleading, again. <laughs> the old bait and switch, that's how I keep you coming back for more. Uh, anyway, uh, you might remember me saying at some point that I'm not particularly good at music. That hasn't changed. Uh, I like the things that I like, even if they're objectively bad. I will write essays to defend those things. Uh, welcome, welcome to the podcast. And I don't really understand the kind of territorial pissings that come with dedicating your life to one genre. Which is why, despite all of my introductory enthusiasm re-discussing new metal, 
I was actually kind of surprised to discover that people consider Linkin Park to be a new metal band. Like, despite the turntables and the rapping slash screaming combo, it hadn't really occurred to me that they would technically fall under that genre. And then the more I was talking to other people I knew who were a couple of years younger than me and didn't obsessively watch music videos for eight hours a day on their weekend, the more I realized that new metal was such an obscene blip on the pop cultural radar that anyone who didn't immediately express loathing for its very existence didn't actually even really know what it was. <laughs> One particular friend sent me a voice memo saying, I know that new is spelt N-U because I am cool, but I also thought that Limp Biscuit was spelled biscuit, like a bicky, which I realize now is silly. <laughs> Which is hilarious, but it also made me a little bit concerned that this particular episode might be even more of a scream into the void than usual. But then I remembered it's my podcast and I can do what I want. <laughs> so we're going to spend some time looking at what new metal is, why new metal is, and why, if the genre is so universally reviled, Linkin Park's hybrid theory still bangs so hard 20 years later. Is it even new metal at all? Do we even care? <laughs> All right, let's let's start with what new metal is for the uninitiated. Like I said, I'm not a music guy, so I'm just going to pull the definition from Wikipedia. The page says, New metal is a subgenre of alternative metal that combines elements of heavy metal music with elements of other genres of music such as hip-hop, alternative rock, funk, industrial, and grunge. The intro also says, uh, along with every other documentary piece that I've watched on new metal in the last two days, that down-tuned seven-string guitars are a hallmark of the genre. This means nothing <laughs> to me, but perhaps one of you is musical and this is like a revelatory moment. I don't know. It also says that the genre rarely features any display of technical competence. Uh, it's referring to guitar solos, but like... Same, you know? Anyway, sound-wise, it's a lot of heavy riffs that kind of reverberate in your ribcage and vocals that seem to lean toward a kind of hip-hop style. Sometimes one guy has a turntable. <laughs> a surprising number of them have really silly face paint, which doesn't necessarily sound like such a bad thing on paper, or at least the stuff prior to the face paint doesn't sound so bad. But in practice, new metal is perhaps one of the most reviled genres to the point that it's almost impossible to bring up without having someone explain why it deserves to be wiped off the face of the earth. NME called it a skid mark on music history in 2013 in an article titled 10 Reasons Why New Metal is the Worst Genre of All Time. <laughs> Lots of artists from cool guy bands credited with kickstarting the whole thing have given scathing interviews claiming that this is not the case. So why the hatred? Great question. I've done a lot of reading, and I've come to the conclusion that it actually doesn't have a huge amount to do with the music itself, if I'm being totally honest. Because sonically, there's not actually anything really wrong with smushing metal together with other genres, and especially not with hip-hop. Rap music and rock music together wasn't even a little bit of a new thing in the early 2000s when the genre became huge. And in fact, as a combination, it had actually already found quite a bit of popularity. Aerosmith and Run DMC had released Walk This Way in 1986, and it had peaked at number four on the Billboard Hottest 100, and was actually the first hip-hop song to chart at all in the UK. 
Hip hop artists had been yanking heavy samples basically forever, and alternative metal bands had been experimenting with more groove oriented riffs throughout the late 80s and the early 90s. This background already existed. And then corn happened. <laughs> Now, metalheads love a documentary about themselves, and I've watched so many of them over the last few days. I can't tell you how funny it is to watch a guy try and explain succinctly how he accidentally invented a genre to a guy who is extremely invested in the response. But lead singer Jonathan Davis has to do that once a year, basically for the rest of his life, because Korn released their self-titled debut album, which sounded completely batshit, and effectively birthed new metal as a thing. While they don't rap, to me it almost kind of seems to take everything, including the guitar and vocals, as like a weird percussive instrument. None of the instruments are doing any of the things that you think that they should be, and on top of that, a lanky white guy in an Adidas tracksuit is flailing his arms around like he's been hit with 240 volts and whisper screaming about his feelings of isolation and rejection. Kids loved it. Korn and Jonathan Davis' feelings are important because, on the one hand, the emotive lyrics that come with a lot of Korn's early work lay the groundwork for what comes later with Linkin Park. But on the other hand... They're responsible for Limp Biscuit, <laughs> And I mean that literally. They helped get Limp Biscuit signed to a record label. When I say that I think people's loathing of new metal has very little to do with the actual music itself in most cases, what I mean is that I think a lot of the hatred has to do with this kind of extremely macho, jockish energy that sprung up around the scene. It went from being a kind of insular playground for weird kids doing heavy things with bass guitars and turntables to the biggest genre in the world, headed up by the worst guy that any of us have ever seen. I am, of course, talking about Limp Biscuit and Fred Durst. You're just as likely to remember Limp Biscuit from frontman Fred Durst's shitty behavior as you are from their shitty music. But let me give you a little refresher, because it's been a while. Musically, they leaned pretty heavy into the rap rock element, and they had huge hits with songs like Break Stuff, Nookie, and Rollin'. Where Korn's lyricism at least had a kind of like intimate or personal element to it, Limp Biscuits was aimless, violent, and stupid. <laughs> Behavior-wise, uh, Limp Biscuit is embedded in the Australian cultural psyche as the band who had a 16-year-old girl die in their mosh pit at the big day out paused for eight minutes, and then kept playing. Or perhaps you may remember their Woodstock 99 performance uh, from a couple of years prior to the big day out, where Durst was accused of inciting a riot while the festival burned to the ground and a number of women were sexually assaulted. With this ugly legacy in mind, I think when people say that they hate new metal, what they're often talking about is the way that Limp Biscuit tapped into this kind of aimlessly violent rage that kind of rattled around in white boys from the suburbs. And rather than letting it collapse in on itself, they channeled it so it exploded outwards into this weird nightmare where a guy with a goatee and a backwards baseball cap dressed like an even worse version of Eminem was suddenly on every TV channel trying to stir shit up and make weirdly defensive jokes about getting pussy. It was hugely prevalent and hugely off-putting. 
And I think it forms a big part of people's contemporary response to the genre. But as quickly as it sprang up, new metal was gone again, existing only in the memories of rural kids who owned seven corn t-shirts and music critics who periodically needed something to rag on. So given that this is a 20th anniversary episode that's supposed to be about Linkin Park's hybrid theory, where do they actually fit into all of this? Speaking as a child who watched a million music videos, I think the best way to kind of show how Linkin Park slotted into the new metal scene is to talk about how I first encountered the genre at all. I mentioned at the top of this episode that I used to spend hours and hours every weekend watching music videos on Rage. Now, Rage had an extremely clear divide between things that were rated MA15+, i.e. not for children, and played at like 4am, and things that were allowed to be played in daylight hours, where young and tender eyes might see them. But I snuck out of bed early when I thought no one could hear me, and I watched when I wasn't supposed to, which meant that I saw things like videos for Slipknot Spit It Out, which features every conceivable horror movie trope, made somehow worse by the fact that Slipknot insists on wearing scary clown masks as their whole shtick. Or I saw Korn's video for Clown, which wasn't so much scary as, like, filled with this vaguely threatening aura of high school violence that ends in a cheerleader stripping off to reveal a corn back tattoo. Now, when I've revisited these videos as an adult, I can see that they're pretty cheaply made using like mostly recycled concert footage a lot of the time, but as a very small child they felt kind of forbidden, probably because they technically were, and that tension combined with the general uneasy feeling that the videos were designed to create meant that I never fully committed to an enjoyment of new metal acts in this vein. But I do remember the first time I saw Linkin Park's video for In The End. It was in daylight hours for a start. I'd finished breakfast and other people were up. And while it opened on a CGI monolith in the middle of a barren wasteland, it was using sci-fi and high fantasy aesthetics that I already loved. Are you getting a picture of who I was as a 10-year-old? <laughs> uh... There were whales flying through the air, uh, you had gargoyles springing to life, hieroglyphics, the band hanging perilously close to the edge of the ledge they were playing on. And the song was catchy. It had screamed vocals, sure, but in a way that felt kind of cool to me. It was legible in a way that Slipknot's screaming or Korn's twisted muttering had never really been previously. I understood it and I didn't feel threatened by it. And I know in a genre that's full of like edgy boundary pushing that saying that sounds kind of like a knock, but I mean it in the most genuine way possible when I say that lead singers Chester Bennington and Mike Shinoda just seemed like nice men with feelings. Chester had a lip ring and flames tattooed on his wrists, but both of them sang directly down the camera with none of the puffed up or threatening posturing that a lot of other rock bands had. The public broadcaster had decided that their video could appear uncensored before my tiny 10-year-old eyes, next to things like NSYNC or the Backstreet Boys, and for my part, I loved it. That isn't to say that they had no edge. Sound-wise, they do lean toward the poppier elements of the genre. Their songs are really catchy, they're often more melodic, and with the kind of scream-along choruses that light up the stadiums they ended up playing. But at the same time, the lyrical content is dark, 
not in a stupid way, like Limp Biscuit, where the core of that darkness is this like oozing misogyny that you find if you drill into it even a little bit. And not in the kind of graphically violent way that a lot of other bands in the genre were. While Slipknot's Corey Taylor was saying that he was going to slit someone's throat and fuck the wound, an actual lyric from Disaster Piece, in case you were wondering, uh, Bennington and Shinoda were talking about substance abuse, depression, and suicidal ideation. And not in an allegorical way, or through grandiose threats of extreme violence. I think one of the reasons that Crawling, which was one of the singles off Hybrid Theory, has become such a meme with Gen Z in a post-irony era is that it is painstakingly earnest in a way that's kind of uncomfortable. Like one of the lines is, the lack of self-control I fear is never-ending. I can't seem to find myself again. Which feels so personal that it's a little bit like reading someone's diary. Rather than screaming, I'm crazy and you don't know what I'll do, they leaned into a fear of becoming something they didn't like. I was reading a few of the articles about the 20th anniversary, and one of the lines that stuck out to me in Pitchfork's review is, they sang about being filled with tension, feeling betrayed by the light, wishing for a way to disappear, and in making themselves small, they became colossal. I think there's something significant in that. By tapping into the parts of themselves that they were uncomfortable with and openly explaining their pain in a fairly straightforward way, they ended up resonating even further than I think they imagined possible. Which brings me to the hardest portion of this podcast. In 2017, Linkin Park vocalist Chester Bennington took his own life at the age of 41. Listening to Hybrid Theory 20 years on is a nostalgic experience on some levels, but on others it's really profoundly upsetting. The kind of raw honesty that he approached their debut with resonated throughout his entire career in art, in fan interactions, and in his community outreach. The huge shock of his passing really weighs heavily over the record as a whole on the re-listen. But in forcing myself to pay attention, it's also really obvious that they have an influence that probably extends further than most contemporary bands would like to admit. The combination of heaviness and a sort of tortured introspect laid a pretty solid groundwork for a lot of bands that would form the core of the emo and screamo explosion that came in the mid-2000s. And that's the thing. I think good new metal was actually pretty good. <laughs> Beyond Linkin Park, I still revisit some of this stuff today. I still play the Deftones White Pony once every six months or so, and will probably do so forever. <laughs> The early corn records are weird, but they hold up in a lot of places. Maybe not the freak on a leash beatboxing. Or maybe definitely the freak on a leash beatboxing, depending on your perspective. <laughs> My point is, I think some of the more excessive elements of the scene have really tainted people's ability to say anything positive about it. But fuck it, I've got no skin in the game, I've never been cool. There are bits of new metal that are really good. <laughs> Combining the bits that sound good from different genres has never really been a musical crime. That's why we've got so much genre bleed now. Linkin Park's hybrid theory is a good thing that emerged from new metal, and we should be able to say that without adding qualifiers. It still bangs 20 years later.
Well, uh, that was the new metal episode that I never thought I'd write. Uh, but you learn something new about yourself every day, I guess. That's uh, new spelled N-U, in case you were wondering. Uh, anyway, happy 20th anniversary to Hybrid Theory. I'm not kidding when I say it still goes hard. I highly recommend gently setting aside all of the pretenses you've learned as an adult and just setting yourself up to enjoy it this October. And when you've done so, uh, come find me at the pub. Peace.